I experience screaming voices. People don't believe how insane I am. And it was, it was terrifying. Totally manic or totally depressed. And it, you know, it wasn't him. Adam we knew. I just wanted a car to hit me or a truck or just something to take me out because this time I wanted it to, to really work. I really felt like I needed to end my life. I felt like I was this complete failure. So I was in really bad, bad shape and the mental health system only made that worse. It's a mythology to think that there's the normal and then there's the abnormal. The average recovery rate in the Western world with all our sophisticated diagnoses and medications and highly paid experts is about one-third. The recovery rate in the developing world is about two-thirds. Where does somebody who's in this delicate state, you know, they're in a process. They're sent to prison, they're sent to jail, they're sent to a psychiatric ward, or they're chemically incarcerated, or they're homeless. In the United States, we've come to believe in the chemical imbalance theory of mental disorder. These medicines are very, very powerful in helping, but they can be very powerful in harming. I mean, like the disclaimer on these pills, that's typically the first side effect, is suicidal thoughts. And that's what the doctor is giving you to feel better. I mean, it's, it's crazy. We live in a psychotic society. We do. And what is, what is meant by psychotic? Out of touch with reality. How mental illness is constructed in different places in the world is very, very different. Only in the Western world have we developed this bizarre idea that hearing voices and having strange ideas has no meaning at all. My human rights work has taken me to indigenous and tribal cultures around the world. Often I met individuals who would go into a trance-like state to serve as a healer or visionary for their community. These are the people we call shaman. And I was surprised to learn that many were identified in their youth by having what we would call a psychotic break. Hearing voices, having visions, feeling terrified, I was struck by how differently these symptoms were looked at in our culture. We have lost touch in our medical system from some of the simple needs that people have for connection, the simple needs that people have for community. Maybe it's not just a broken brain. Maybe it's not just an illness. Maybe this is not just something to hide and be ashamed of. Maybe it's something to explore and learn from. Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyun. Very excited to be talking about storytelling for social change. We have Phil Bordis joining us on the show. Hello. Hey, Alan. Thank you for coming on, yeah, Phil. my pleasure. I'm so excited for this. Yeah. You've been doing such important work around our world, and I'm so grateful that I stumbled upon it and that now we're going to be able to talk about it at depth on the show. For those that don't know Phil's background, he has been documenting indigenous and tribal cultures for over 25 years, striving to create an understanding of the challenges they face. His work is exhibited in museums and galleries worldwide and his award-winning books, which have been published in four languages, include Tibetan Portrait, Enduring Spirit, Women Empowered, and Tibet Culture on the Edge. 
He has hosted television documentaries on indigenous cultures for Discovery and National Geographic channels. Phil also lectures and teaches internationally. His recent project, Crazy Wise, which we just watched the trailer of, explores the relevance of shamanic traditional practices and beliefs to those of us living in the modern world. And you can find the links in the bio below to Phil's website, as well as the Crazy Wise Film website and the Facebook page for Crazy Wise Film. Phil, let's start things off with asking you, what are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Who? <laughs> it's everything. You know, there's so much exciting new discoveries. There's so many young people that want to get involved and change the direction of some of the more negative things that are happening. And there's this which surprised me, this um, turn towards individualism, I would say, turn to the right. We want to keep ours and, and protect ours. Driven, I guess, you know, really it's being driven by climate change, I think. Syria, um, largely the, dis the un instability there caused by the farmers not being able to grow their crops in the beginning that had some of the uh, the background of what caused all that immigration to Europe and the destabilization of that government now the war same thing with a lot of the people coming up from South America that you know our so-called immigration crisis so um, yeah, there's, this, there's that going on, but yet there is this whole mobilization of new thinking. And it, it, where I've been in the last six years is in the world of mental health. And I, I stumbled into it quite by accident, came out of my work, human rights work in indigenous and tribal cultures over a 25 year period and I began meeting these healers and visionaries and learned how they were identified. So um, it brought me, and then I met a young kid in my hometown of Seattle that he became the main protagonist in our film, Crazy Wise. And it brought me into the world of mental health and how it, we're in crisis right now. I mean, in the Western world, Depression became the number one cause of disability in 2017. And the World Health Organization had predicted about 20 years ago that by 2020 it would be the number one cause. Well, we reached it three years early. Suicide rates over a 15-year period were up 24%. That's huge. And and this is in the midst of us trying to solve the problem pharmaceutically, biomedically. Yeah. And I, Crazy Bites is not a anti-med film because every mental health worker I've talked to says they're glad they have that in their toolbox. But it's being abused, way overused. Yes. Um, it's looked at as a lifetime solution. It is not a lifetime solution. So, um, yeah, so I've been thrown into that world and, and, and not only seeing the problem, but seeing this evolution of what they call the recovery movement, 
people who have successfully navigated a mental health crisis and um, proven you can recover. And they are forming a movement. They say, this is what helped us, this is what didn't help us, and that movement is growing like mad now. So there's a lot of good, and there's a lot of problems to solve. Yeah. There's something about the indigenous wisdom that has been lost that in the complexity of today's exponential technology and geopolitical hodgepodge of mayhem that's happening, if we can embed this ancestral wisdom into our ethics and our philosophies and our morals and our connection to nature, if we can do that, we can handle the future. And without that, it's causing more unnecessary suffering. And I'm, I'm really happy that, you know, that you're really diving deep into this with mental health. It, I can't believe it's number one on depression dis disabling people right now worldwide. Um, and the overprescription of um, pharmaceuticals that do such complex things to our biology that we can't actually fully simulate and understand what's happening um, versus practicing things like connection to nature and deep connection to our own essence and what our life purpose is and these types of things and right. community and family and love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it became so... It was impressed upon me because I would go to do these, do the work I was doing. I would go out for about six weeks, come back, go out for another two months, come back, back and forth. And I, it's such a contrast going into a tribal or an indigenous small community, then coming back here. You know, first of all, many of the places I go, they eat maybe three or four things. You know, and their diet is amazing. And not eat every day. And then come here and walk into a Whole Foods grocery store and have just, you know, this, all this choice. And, but, you know, uh, we've gained so much in the direction we've taken, but we've also lost things. And the thing I think we've lost that I've noticed is connection. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. you just said, connection to each other. I mean, they, in these small groups, and this is the way our brain evolved, they have to be connected to survive. They don't have old age homes. They have no institutions to, that they can farm out their old people to. They've got to take care of their old people. They have no daycare centers. So the women typically nurse each other's babies. Yeah. You know, I've seen them pass, you know, one woman will pass her baby to another woman's because she has to go get the water in the well, and then that woman may have to go chase her goat, so she'll pass that baby to another woman. Wow. Um, so they don't have these institutions like daycare centers, old age homes, Medicare, Social Security. Yeah, yeah. They've got to provide that by forming deep reciprocal connections to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then to themselves, um, they, they have rituals, traditions, beliefs that give them an outlet for their creativity, their self-expression, where they can express their emotions. I mean, usually everybody in the group sings. 
Yeah. You know, I'm embarrassed to sing. You know, we've got these professionals that are so good at singing. You say, well, I don't want to. But we can all sing. <laughs> yeah. And they all dance it. and they sing and they're with their bodies drumming a lot. And sing so, a song, sing a yeah, song, yeah, yeah, sing right, yeah. Sing. of good things, sing. not bad. Okay. So okay. important. Sorry. Such a bonding thing, singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No daycare, no elderly care, altruism, reciprocal altruism, yeah. so evidently visible. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is connecting, of course, to nature. And they have to do that because they have to grow all their own food. So they have to know all the flora and fauna and what is poisonous, what is not, yeah. how it, you know. And, but on top of that, they have this um, metaphor of there being spirit energy in everything. Yes. In the mountains, in the rivers, in yes. the forests. So they're spiritually connected on a deeper level. And, you know, the shamans, I'll see shapeshift into different animals and take on that animal energy. Yes. And so they have this very tight connection that I think we've lost, partially lost. And for, for one thing, we're a very individualistic society. I think, especially America, we're the cult of the individual. You know, celebrity, individual accomplishment, you know, all these things are very strong, especially in our culture, even compared to Asian cultures, where it's a more, little more collective. Yeah. But in these cultures, it's even, it's even more apparent how we are uh, more individually driven. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff right there. So. So let's start with how you mentioned there is this deep drive for altruism. There's this deep drive for rituals, for singing, for even, you know, passing the babies during for, for breastfeeding when one has to go do an activity that the you have to know the flora and fauna that are local to your area rather than all the corporate logos that are trying to self deal themselves into your life. There's the spirit energy and everything that uh, that's so beautiful when you can do things like really get behind the essence of another creature and bring that creature's experience into your own uh state of, of awareness and that way you can then gain a greater sense of empathy and uh, get yourself out of your own body and connect with all that is that these things uh help us uh, get, gain the true insight into the reality and when we're so deep into individualist culture we lose sight of our interconnectedness and that you were you said this and I just want to say it may even be that so many of the indigenous cultures are saying that our disconnection from nature our disconnection from source from spirit is the exact reason why we have so many of the malevolences the errors the issues that exist in our civilization yeah so if we can if we can basically pull these two worlds of the craziness of building the artificial general intelligences with the indigenous wisdoms if we can kind of bring these two worlds together yeah we can build where we want to go better yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. phil it's so important for us to understand who you were as a kid growing up hmm. you're born here in oakland in yeah. the bay area yeah and you're born in 42. Right. Yes, 76 now. 
yeah. years old. And so born in 42, that's still in the middle of the Second World War. Yeah. And there, I mean, what's going on in the world at that time? And who are you growing up? How do you get interested in writing and in film and art, photography? You're gonna tell him how fantastic he looks. You gonna look? Yeah, yeah. Seventy-six. Look at that. Turn on those beauty lights. Forty-two. You look great. You do look. You do. Yeah. (laughs) You look marvelous. You look marvelous. Marvelous. I get that, Phil. I don't know if I'm young and gets it. I do love that. You look. Boy, that's a long story, Alan. (laughs) Yeah. I was born here in Oakland. Um, um, the, the important parts, I think, in my life that happened, uh, I had an older sister, 13 years older, and I had a younger sister, a year and a half younger. My dad dies when I'm seven, and that's a major event in my life. I, um, the teach, I don't remember this, but my mom told me that the teacher said, I just stared out the window for that entire year. It left a deep mark on me. Um, then what was the reason why he? What was the reason why? He, uh, he died of lung cancer. Lung he was cancer. a heavy smoker. He died of forty-three smoking three packs a day. Forty-three. He yeah. was so young. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So um, then we moved to San Lorenzo, which is part of the East Bay, and um, I. It was kind of a lower middle class family, mixed neighborhood, which was nice, Um, but um, we were, as kids, um, kind of like hoods, but not bad hoods, and I got involved in, I was an entrepreneur, so I got involved in firecrackers, which were (laughs) illegal, and a kid across the street told me how I could get them. I could go down to Chinatown in Oakland, and there was one grocery store. You could go in the back room and give them the money and tell them what you wanted, and then go out on the street and stand at a certain corner, and a car would come by and throw the firecrackers <laughs> up. So anyway, I ended up with this firecracker business in San Lorenzo when I was about 10, 11, 12. And it got me several infractions with the police. Yeah. And my mother worked all day, so uh, you know I would just pray that the police would be gone by the time she got home, and I'd bury the firecrackers in the backyard. But anyway, I got enough in trouble over that that she sent me to a ranch that my older sister had married into in Utah. Whoa. And so all of a sudden, I went from this kind of track development, you know, as kids getting in trouble all the time, to this ranch that was in this beautiful valley. It was a little community, much like the communities I visit. Mm-hmm. You know, all Mormons, so one, one religion, one belief. Mm. Um, they helped each other build their barns. We helped each other haul each other's hay, cut each other's hay, bale it, do all the things through the farm. We didn't go to the grocery store. Yeah. We grew our, uh, we raised all our own food, Whoa. made our own soap. <laughs> I mean, it was like, and I just blossomed in that. It, it literally kept me from going down a wrong path. 
And the other thing that changed for me is my mom moved from San Lorenzo to Arinda, okay. which is an upper middle class. Mm -hmm. And I went from not really doing anything in school to these kids, being around these kids that were great students mm -hmm. and had, the, uh, I didn't even speak very good English. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm throwing in there and that took me a while to catch up. In, uh, as a freshman in high school. So that was a big change in my life and I don't know how much detail you want me to go into. Keep going, the story's great, please. So um, anyway, I finally started doing well in school. Mainly one teacher turned me around. One guy stopped me in the hall because he knew I wasn't doing homework at home because I do it right before class, five minutes, whip out my algebra. And he said, he came up to me in the hall once and he just stopped me and he said, Phil, you know, most of these kids are at home doing an hour and a half of homework. I see you whip out yourself. You're getting a C, but that's amazing you can do that in five minutes. <laughs> Get a C <laughs> He said, if you applied yourself, yeah. it might really surprise you. And then he just walked on. Mm. And it just, I was just sat there sort of stunned. So I started performing for this guy. Nice. And got an A in the class. And then, I mean, I started off with D's and F's. And by the time I got out of high school, I was getting pretty much A's and B's. How long did you spend in Utah before you came back? Um, I would spend the whole summer there. And I did that right through high school. Okay, Except every for summer. my last year as a senior, because I was saving up to go to college. Okay. And then, and by the way, my family is Mormon. Okay. And, and while I'm in high school, I'm going to church like nine times a day, a, a week. Oh, nine times a week? Yeah, Whoa. three times on Sunday, um, five times before school for seminary, and one Tuesday night called Mutual. So I was totally immersed yeah. in Mormonism. Yeah. And in my first year to go to college, I decided to go to Brigham Young University mm -hmm. in Utah. And I really got disillusioned with the church at that point, slightly. Um, there, this is in the 60s, by the way, 1960. Civil rights movements just starting to take off. In the Mormon church, any person of color, especially an African-American, could not hold the priesthood. And every male gets to hold the priesthood. That's the power in the Mormon church. And um, they've changed that since then. The Mormons tend to try to keep up with the evolution of our, of our culture. And anyway, so I was becoming disillusioned and I was running out of money, living away from home. I came back the next year and transferred to Berkeley. Mm, mm. So Brigham Young to Berkeley, mm -hmm. another big yeah. kind of, it was like San Lorenzo to Arinda, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I became an atheist, basically. Whoa. You know, I, I just thought religion, you know, this is just everybody's fear of death. It's a nice um, fairy tale to ease everybody about that. And um, I stayed that way uh, until then I graduate from Berkeley and I go to UC Med Center here in the city, living on Parnassus in the Haight-Ashbury district. 
from 65 to 69, right during the summer of love and all the hippie stuff going on and playing around a little bit with um, drugs, you know, marijuana a little bit, a little bit of psilocybin, mm -hmm. but not much, mainly going to school. And a couple of things happened. One, I went just as a joke um, to a psychic that was out on the avenues. Madame Rousseau was her name. And she was kind of this heavyset woman set in this um, living room, folding chairs where people could come in. And you would write your questions on a piece of paper, put them in an envelope, in a basket, and then she would take that basket during hers. She had a big picture of Jesus behind her. And in that basket, she would hold these envelopes one at a time, much like Johnny Carson did, if you remember Johnny Carson, mm -hmm. the great Kruskin, mm -hmm. hold them, you know, and, but she had hold them in her hands and she would answer the questions. So I wrote down, how old am I? Where was I born? I, I forget all the questions, mundane, totally mundane questions. So she's answering all these questions for these people. And these people are totally into it. They're going, yes, you're right on. Oh my God, oh. She comes to mind and she just sat there for a minute and she went, you know, this person's testing me. Um, I wish you wouldn't do it. There's a lot of people here that really have legitimate concerns and it's really wasting their time. And then she just put it aside and went on to the next person. So that kind of caught my attention. You know, how did she do that? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I came again and watched the basket to make sure no one was slipping her answers behind this. But she could do that. And I began asking her legitimate questions and she was pretty right on. And I. And that was happening, and my mind was opening a little bit with the marijuana and the psilocybin. And so I started opening again to this closed, you know, thought about what reality is, I guess. And um, this is at the time of the big counterculture. Yeah. Flourishing. Right. But I had a job. Uh, work-study job to stay in school while I was in dental school interviewing the hippies on the street. Why were they using the drugs with needles and if we gave them free needles would they use those needles? So I was doing this for a psychologist so mm. I would sit on the street pick out one of the freakiest people coming down the street to interview to make my day interesting and ask them which drugs are you using, which drugs are you shooting if you had free needles, would you use them? And uh, I started taking photographs of them. So I took out a little student loan, got a Minolta SRT 101 and started photographing them along with my interviews. Mm. That's kind of what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's where my photography kind of really started. During and, dental school. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I even, yeah. Did you uh, keep doing that while you did this 18-year career as a dentist, too? No. You didn't photograph I put it aside because I built my practice, and 
and I got into that and uh, and then when my son was born uh, I took out my old Minolta loaded with black and white film filmed his birth and then I didn't have any place to develop the film so I went to this community called I was living up in Sonoma up in the wine country and I um, took the film to a one-hour lab they couldn't do it so I went over to Napa um, Community College and they had this dark room they said if you I asked them if I could use it and they said yeah but you got to take a class here <laughs> so I said okay I'll take a class and I got this instructor that was totally in fact I just saw him before I came down here from I live in Seattle Ron Zach was his name is his name and he was so inspirational, I got totally turned on to photography, fell in love with it, head over heels even more than when I was in dental school, and decided I am going to go into this. I'm going to leave my practice and go into this. So over the yeah. next year and a half, I kept taking his classes, and at the same time I brought in somebody to replace me in my practice, mm -hmm. and then I moved to Seattle. Mm. and declared myself a photographer and and of course uh, my son was just a baby at that time so I had the responsibility of and my wife didn't work at the time a wife and a, a mm. child and so it was real scary making that transition yeah. and um, and I started doing commercial work it took me three years to get my first job Wow you know it was a hard to break into it then I started becoming successful as a commercial photographer and then I decided you know I got this one job where they had me illustrating romance novel covers and I did about 30 40 of those oh. and at, as I was doing those I just said to myself is this what I quit orthodontics <laughs> for <laughs> Although I was loving photography. And just about that time, I met a woman who had an organization in Seattle advocating for Tibetan rights, what was going on in Tibet. This is the early 90s now. And just a light bulb went off in my mind. I'm going to Tibet. And I'm gonna document what's going on and rather than the commercial yeah software. so I took yeah. the I was paying eight thousand dollars a year to put my photos in a a, ma a a book that went to all the art directors that's how you made it in commercial photography I stopped putting my eight thousand dollars a year into that and I put it into some trips to Tibet whoa and that changed everything because I didn't have a business plan. It wasn't like I did it to make money. I just wanted to do it. And long story short, my first book came out of those images. People started buying my images in galleries. Pretty soon I had galleries all over the country selling my work. Then I, then I didn't have to do commercial work anymore. I love that. And um, so I've been doing these you know, anything like a, a social or environmental issue that turns me on, I put my camera to that and started telling stories. And I would do it mainly with portraits. Mm -hmm. 
because I love that process of making a good portrait of somebody. What I consider a yeah. good portrait, anyway. You capture their spirit at an exact moment in time in their candid yeah the, the look of just being there and somewhat being a little vulnerable or just yeah. being and so i would put those individual portraits together in an exhibit and it would tell the story that i wanted to tell like mm. in tibet yeah how these i started with the refugees including the dalai lama yeah. living in dharamsala india then I went into Tibet and documented the people there and just kind of put that together in a book and a story. So that's what I've been doing um, pretty much for the 25 years. And during that time, meeting by chance, first with the Dalai Lama's oracle, the Nechung oracle, um, and then um, other healers in these communities, visionaries, people we call shaman. Yeah. And they go by different names in their communities. And learning how they were selected. And it was fascinating to me to hear that they were selected mainly by having an intense crisis in their life. Wow. Often it was sometimes a physical crisis where they almost died from a high fever or something but most often it was a psychological a mental emotional mm -hmm. crisis where they were seeing visions or hearing voices they were very frightened and usually an elder would take them aside and tell them that you've got a special sensitivity yeah it's wow. difficult but you can learn to manage it yes. and once you do Wow. It's going to be very useful to the community. That's so beautiful. So it was such a contrast to what I later learned. And I did that for 25 years, interviewing people like this. Um, and then I meet a kid in um, Seattle that um, had a psychotic break when he was 20 it's a very typical age for that was told he had a chemical imbalance of his brain and that um, it can be rebalanced with these pharmaceuticals but you cannot be cured so you're going to probably have to be on these for the rest of your life who, so you who even says cannot be cured there's so many unlimited possibilities for what could potentially help cure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. But we, I don't think any was, anybody's doing that maliciously. They just didn't know. They yeah. didn't know. Yeah. We don't know. We're afraid of non-ordinary states of consciousness, basically. Yeah. And they're frightening to a family because when you go into some of these, and I've interviewed many people that have gone into these states now, and so I can say that what I've learned is that when you go into one of these states, you do have somewhat of a personality change. I mean, you look at yeah. the world very differently. Yeah. And, and the thing that's fascinating to me now is part of that, looking at it differently, you feel more a part of everything your ego boundaries dissolve to a yep. certain extent. And you, so you have the sense of oneness mm. and bliss. 
in the beginning many times, but then it can turn to terror and fear over, for several reasons. One, the fear coming from the people around you, your family, mm. your lover, mm. your boss, mm -hmm. um, that knew you one way, and you're trying to explain this thing that's happening to you, yeah. and there's really no yeah. good language to explain it. And so um, they get scared. And the other thing about being in the Oh, he's becoming a crazy person. We need to go and lock him up. <laughs> we need to go and throw pharmaceuticals in the, in the brain. Yeah, mm -mm. shut it down. Shut it, no, no, no. They're just the, the, this is so important, the gifts of these experiences to be able to share them with the right, sometimes family may not be the right people to share it That's with. Right. So, and that we need to be ready to find, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time to find the right community, the right friends, the right people to share these experiences with, and then get this that validation that this is something that people experience, these yeah. non-ordinary states of consciousness. Yes. These ones that can give us so much more insight into the nature of reality. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Usually, there are very, they're very bright individuals that this happens to. Yeah. Usually, they're very creative. They look, they think outside of the box. So, and right now, the tragedy is most of them are ending up in jail, or on the streets, homeless, or um, heavily. Some people call it chemically incarcerated. So. Um, yeah, it, it's really kind of a tragedy what's going on, but it's also getting better. <laughs> so that's the good news. Because a lot of these people that have had these experiences are speaking up now. You know, so stigmatized they usually didn't speak up. Yeah. It was like being gay back in 1960. And so they're starting to come out and speak up and say, yeah, this happened to me. And when I go around showing Crazy Wise, and I've shown it yeah. all over Europe and here in the United States, um, there's people that stand up in the audience and come out for the first time. That happens quite a bit. So, wow. It's just, yeah, that's what it's going to take. It's just more yeah. people saying, yeah, this is, this is a human, a natural human experience, and um, it's actually a potential growth process if supported and contextualized properly. Yes. And the way we're contextualizing it now as a broken brain, many times with the words, there's really no cure. And um, you can function, you may not be able to do everything you had your heart set on and your goals, but you will be able to function in our society more or less. And you tell a young kid that, that's like putting a hex on them. Especially if you're in a white coat and a person of authority like a doctor. And it's, it's just yeah. a negative placebo effect. Yeah. And the placebo effect is very strong. Yeah. Versus you can do this. Yeah. Our you can find your purpose. And you can find meaning and do that every day and fall in love with who you are. And yeah. what you care about, yeah, and find good friends, family, and community around you. That that's the positive effect that we can have. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but, uh, yeah, that's what the message in Crazy Wise is, you know. You need that support. You need the community. You need those relationships. You need to be given space to have this come out. And what's, many times it could be driven by past traumas. There's a lot of different scenarios why somebody would slip into these non, I call them extraordinary states. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, just a different way of supporting and, and looking at them. The shaman, you know, they have the advantage. They have, first of all, it's not pathologized. Yes. Secondly, they get a mentor. It's usually an older shaman so who's cool. been through it. Yeah. They know that so cool. feeling. They know what it is. The sensitivity. So they, yeah. Yeah. And third, they have a community that honors them and respects them and gives them purpose and said, yeah. you're valuable to us. It's, it's like the, um, you know, um, uh, Boaz Goan from um, Wisdo is, uh, when we had him on the show, they're building a community right now. They have about a half a million people in this community where they can uh, get uh, uh, mentors connected with other people that have experienced similar things as as you may have when you may have had a difficult experience. That Where, when you where get is this? Wisdo. It's called Wisdo. Wisdo.com. W-I-S-D-O. Oh, it's an and online community. Online community. 500,000 people are in this community now. And wow. it's And so, wow. yeah. Yeah, you can get connected with people that have had these similar difficulties and then you can start talking to them about and getting that mentorship about um, the sensitivity that you now have wow. to that. So I'm going to have to put yeah. that on my website. We'll get, yeah, we'll get these things yeah. connected. We'll get you Wisdo. guys connected. Wisdo, yeah, we'll get you guys connected with um, Boaz. Boaz going, yeah. yeah wow. they're, they're moving fast. Um, when yeah, were they is, created? Israeli, Israeli company we created um, a couple of years, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, they're moving fast. And and so, the, so these, are, these are some of the examples of like, Okay, can you imagine if the society is pathologizing these sensitivities, it's inevitable we're going to have uh, a, unneeded suffering. But when you're saying, okay, this person had some sort of a difficult experience, now let's pair it, well, you can get through this, let's pair it with a mentor, a community, um, people that can help get through that experience. Now you've trained your sensitivity to that experience, you can help others, you can achieve your creative endeavoring in the world at a, at a, it's just like, this is, I love it. I love how all these pieces connect. Yeah. Yeah. Plus the person that's helping, that helps them. Yeah. The person that becomes the peer that's helping the person that's going through it, that they're called wounded healers. That's basically what a shaman is, is yeah. a wounded yeah. healer. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I've heard that. I like that. The wounded healer. Mm -hmm. I wonder, yeah, because it probably makes the healer better that they have went through a difficult experience before and that they're able to relate to that. Yeah. It's like when you say that, you know, if you have previously started a business or if you've previously done art or if you've previously done science experiments, you're a better scientist or business person or an artist because yeah. you've done it previously. You've done right. these challenging things. You've gone through them right. before. 
Okay. Um, uh, I mean, there's still so much to, to, to talk about with the books that you've made. I mean, all of the photos um, that you've taken are just, they're gorgeous captures. And it's so great that people found out about it and then helped fund um, the artwork to be shown, these portraits to be shown in galleries and museums, places that more people can then go and gain an understanding of these indigenous cultures. So they not only gain that understanding, but it also helps fund your next steps, your continued next steps. That's the way to move art in the world, is to have it be identified as something that can help awaken and get into the right places for people to go and visit those places, and then also to fund those artists' continued pursuits. But, yeah. Um, okay, let's... So Crazy Wise was actually uh, kick-started by over 700 people, mm -hmm. which is very cool as Amazing. well. Amazing, you've done yeah. your homework. Yeah, yeah. which is so cool. <laughs> Because, yeah, that yeah, was. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even know that audience, really. I mean, um, people that would be interested in the subject, because I'd never even delved into it before. It wasn't th something I did. And yeah, to get all that support from... So I knew there were a lot of people wanting that message out there. And... Uh, and so we're slowly growing this thing, and, and, uh, and I, I really, for me, it's my spiritual journey. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, you know, this whole sense of feeling of oneness. To me, when I use the word spiritual, I'm using it as something that connects us to the whole. Yes. You know? something that brings us back to that realization that we're yeah. part of the whole, the whole right yeah. yeah and so to find out that so many of these people that went to adam in our film um said it right off the bat in our first interview so when i started this film i was just doing a film on mindfulness and so i was working with the producer who was just sending me people to interview that were meditators. And she sent me Adam, and Adam's story that he was told this, you know, biomedical reason for his, his craziness. He said, you know, when it first happened, it was very fun and exciting. It was like my ego shattered. He said, it was the first time I felt at one in the universe, where I was it and it was me. And then I kept going, and then I went way too far, and then it got scary. So I've heard stories like this over and over again. That was the first time I'd ever heard it, but you know, when Whoa. I did this um, first yeah. interview with Adam. And, um, so that whole, that whole experience, now I've learned, um, now I'm kind of into the neuroscience of it a bit. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, interviewing people that are really doing, there's a whole renaissance in psychedelic research yes. going on right now. And, um, and it's so important for it to be decentralized and open source and done for the right ethical reasons, moral reasons, right. and not to fall under the same 
forces that are greed or corruption. Yeah. 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 Well, and also, you know, what happened when I was in my 20s with Timothy Leary and the whole, you know, set and setting. First set is so important. You've got to have an intention. What do you want to That's have right. come out of this experience? That's right, yeah. And then setting. It's good to have a guide that's been through it. Yes. And that can help you as things get frightening. Yeah. Because typically it, it involves an ego dissolution. Yeah. And we don't want to die. <laughs> The shaman calls their initiation the little death. The little death. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't want to die. You know, we, you know, you build up your, you know, I'm Phil Borges. I'm this well-known photographer. I don't, <laughs> I don't want all that to go away. <laughs> well, but it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do? Why would I, I want to die? I'm Ron Vargas okay. for crying out loud. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everybody loves me. <laughs> these, these little deaths can be so valuable because then they make it so that we don't get so attached yeah. to our ego. Yeah. 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 And, and I just want to quickly say before you continue on the story, you gave this really profound um, couple steps that people go through, which is now becoming more and more common in, in the mainstream. We're slowly sh um, removing the taboo around talking about mental health and how things like when we dissolve our ego and we get to these unbounded states of feeling infinite, whole with everything, then sometimes it can feel like that that mind, that whole expansion itself is like, oh my gosh, that was crazy, that was so far. Now, you, there's almost like a, a you, you got, there has to be community present there. So you have to have this like powerful intent and then a powerful community, this guide, these types of things that can help ground again and say that, are you okay? Like that was yeah. good and you're okay. Like we can help um, with You've the integration. Got to, you've yeah. got to integrate it. Yeah, yeah. And that is a step-by-step -step process. And when Adam said, I went too far, he went further than he was able to integrate it into this reality. Wow. And, yeah. and it's like, like I said earlier, before we started taping, um, I'm learning to set my boundaries. You know, I'm kind of a guy that caves in sometimes when I shouldn't cave in. Uh, to others' suggestions and just to keep the peace and keep everybody happy. And at the same time, I'm trying to dissolve those boundaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting process. But um, I'm putting, I, so since the film, I've started a thing called Crazy Wise Conversations. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing much like what you're doing, interviewing Ooh, people. Love it and people that have had these experiences and, and talking about people to people about what, it, what it's like to go too far and how do they ground themselves again? What techniques do they use to reground? Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure 
that that's what the shaman learns in their initiation, Techniques which usually takes a year or two. Is yeah, how do you yeah. keep your foot in both worlds? Yes, the world of dropping your that's great your sense of ego, your sense of self, and then coming back and using that knowledge and space you were in to contribute to the world and, yeah. and, and be able to do that. And you've got to have an ego to, to, to work in this world. So wow, it, it is a, it's, it's quite a balancing act. And I've got one um, woman I started interviewing who is diagnosed bipolar. And she, is, she loves going into that space slightly, that manic part. She calls it hypomanic because her creativity shoots up yeah. through the roof. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's yeah. a writer and the words yeah. just flow. Yeah. But when she's not in that space, she's very tense and, and constrained. But yes, she can't yes. stop it from going too far. And yeah. uh, this is a long discussion and I'm talking a lot, but it's so how can I film. shorten it? Um, going too far, you know, we look at the world through models, through mm. mental models yes. that are constructed in a part of our brain that they're starting to talk about now. It's called the default mode network. Mm -hmm. And these mental models are just what we've learned growing up about reality. And so we don't have to you know, we're just bombarded with all this sensory data, visual, auditory, proprioception, yes. taste, all that. And, and now the computing and social and yeah, internet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so um, we have to make mental shortcuts to deal with all this, and we do. And so um, if you... Um, Look at a tree. It's just a tree. You can just put it in a category tree. You don't have to go up and touch know it. Know what it smells, smells like, like and, you know. Feels and like we it. do that with everything. And so we're actually. It's like the icons. It's a building icon. It's a car icon. It's a human icon. Yeah. 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 Instead of the nuanced, when you get closer to it, you smell it, touch it, taste it, look yeah. at it in its eyes, well, that's depth right. of its soul. Yeah. 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 And because it would just be overwhelming to be constantly doing that. <laughs> so this default mode network, they call it, the, these neuroscientists call it the grand conductor because it kind of helps us build those models. Yep. And so there's a positive aspect to it, but there's also a negative aspect to it because if you've built so many models and you become so rigid in your thinking and you're really not seeing things as they really are, you're seeing it through these models, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and especially if those models are negative. Mm-hmm. If those models, of, especially of your own self, how you consider yourself and um, uh, because also that narrative self that we create is a mental model and if it's really stuck in a negative place um, you get your depression your PTSD your 
OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, eating disorders, all those type of disorders are too, because of too rigid of a system. It's like what um, Laura says, when I'm in that space, I can't write and words don't flow, I can't make my jewelry, I can't, it, I don't get those inspirations that I used to get. Yeah. But she says, when I get into that um, space of hypomania and then all my words are flowing and everything, those mental models are starting to dissolve. The default mode network is starting to shut down. But then if it shuts down too much, it's like I get to a space, and this is in her words, it's on our website, where I have to find something that everybody knows is real, like the sun rises, the sun sets. Yeah. Because I'm not sure of anything else. Mm. I mean, so it can get to where it's terrifying, and a lot of people end up you know, with all the symptoms of a psychosis that we associate yeah. with having to be shut down. Yes. So it's, it's really interesting in terms of this spiritual, you know, breaking down the models, the model of the ego and all that. And anyway, it's fascinating stuff and there's the, all these guys working on it now yeah. with fMRI imaging yes. to see how the brain changes and how this network, this default mode network shuts down in somebody, not in a psychosis because they've never been able to test that, but how it shuts down with somebody on a heavy dose of LSD yep. or a heavy dose of psilocybin yep. or a monk that's been meditating for a, a long time. Yep. Their default mode network is shut way down. Yep. And so, and I'm sure it, it would be the same with somebody that's had a near-death experience or an yes. artist that's totally lost in their work where their sense of self goes away and they're yep. just right in the moment. Deep flow. Yeah. Yep. Or extreme sports or something like that. These things are so deeply interconnected, so deeply interconnected, all these fields. The flow, the flow, deep flow states, the meditation states, the psychedelics, the, um, the, this grand conductor of the default mode network creating such a, a, a rigid um, a state, uh, way to, per, to conserve uh, energy by just saying tree icon instead of going deeper into the tree and smelling, touching, looking at the ecosystems within the tree that are there. There's so much there. And then also just the importance of having one foot in this, yes, physical world where I'm in this body, but at the same time having one foot out of this physical world when I'm, where I'm in this body and being connected to all that is this unbounded wholeness of everything from a moment to moment basis and being in that style of life where you can be in both and do it in a way that is mentally healthy can be transformative for you achieving your maximum destiny in the world, being great with your family and your community and just having a healthy functioning civilization. 
and I mean these things are so damn interconnected yeah yeah it's are you able to do it I'm starting to get better and better at it um, and trying to do it as healthy as healthily as I can so how do you go better uh, doing it hell um, One of the, I think one of the most simple ways for everyone, um, and we've talked about this on the show, is that the, the fact that there is something, that there is life, that we are alive versus there not being this opportunity to be alive, that first and foremost needs to be what we are extremely grateful for on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, the fact that sure. we are alive. Yeah. And that we all come from something. Yeah. Okay. Then it's that this these these breaths of air keep me alive, mm -hmm. and that I'm deeply interconnected to the breaths of air that I take, and so are you, and we all have to do that. Mm -hmm. But then we all also have to drink this water. Mm -hmm. So then we all do the same thing with the water. Every time we take a drink, we remember that, mm. and then all of a sudden. It, the interconnectedness is with you all the time. It's with you every breath. It's with you every drink of water, every bite, bite of food. Every time you look at someone in the eyes, you see them as a divine being. Everything changes. Your whole life changes. And that's something to share to other people. It's not a rigid thing that you push onto people. It's something you say, see how this feels for you. Mm. Pra practice it at your own expression mm. be your own artist with it mm. i like that and you do that and you've been doing it for a while for just a little bit especially through the help of indigenous leaders have been helping me oh really the kogi tribe has been mama nui juan has been a big one that has helped me tremendously mm. with this and we were fortunate enough to interview Mama, and it was a really really good one wow um, it's on our channel it's a really good one and then we we also um, interviewed the Lucille Foundation, which made the 12 film, wow. and then they went and did 12, 12 of these indigenous leaders gathered in mm -hmm. um, at the United Nations headquarters to move the trajectory of the planet in a more beneficial direction. Wow. And that's how I discovered Crazy Wise film through our friend Nishan, who then said, "Check who our who? friend Nishan, who's going to be speaking at our at our um, upcoming event next week, told me about Crazy Wise film, oh. and because I sent him our interview with um, with Mama Nui Juan, and he and he said that these things have been coming from all different angles, these indigenous oh. wisdoms, and he said Crazy Wise came into my life. Here, let me pass it to your life, and I got Crazy Wise, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool that this is happening. Now we have to." I have to email the team and see if anyone's coming through the area so we can interview them. And you're like, hey, I'll be there in a week or two. Let's, yeah, let's make it happen. Wow, yeah. interesting. That's how all of these things yeah, wow. come together. Wow. And it's just, it's just one of those really simple practices that, you, that the, the air, the water, the food, mm. these very simple things, just being alive. Yeah. But do it in your own way. Do it in your own mm -hmm. artistic expression. It's not mm -hmm. a top-down force it. It's more like yeah. a try it out, see how it feels. Great. What it does, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it a lot. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that, yeah. Bill, this has been such a, such a good conversation. Ron, did we, move, did we throw any of the videos throughout? Did we get any of those in there? 
No. No. <laughs> well, let's throw let's throw in at least um, one of the pieces. I like of this uh, Siberia MO1 that has the. Um, yeah, let's do this one. Footage here. So this is in Siberia. So teach us about this. Uh, this is in Balava, Siberia, or eastern part of um, the, uh, of Siberia, um, out of Habarovsk, and I'm just. Um, I went there to meet um, about three or four uh, shaman, and they were all older women. And this is Emma, Mama Emma, as they called her. Mm -hmm. And I'm just here explaining. I, I guess the audience has audio on this. Oh, uh, you want to hear the audio? Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. No, but bring it up. I'm talking it up. over myself. Way to go. But anyway, um, yeah, she's. Well, Emma was the first woman we met, uh, and she's also one of the strong shamans in this town of Balava. So she's um, definitely got a lot of respect in this community, in the Elchi community. And she had these glasses that were kind of askew so and one eye that was somewhat blind that looked out I over the top of them. I had a sort of cross make this and, image. And, but she would look at you and, and the right through those thick lenses. Um, and. Um, Working around the problem of her thick her glasses eye, and the fact that her eye doesn't strange. look straight so at you. Faced her off camera. So I decided to face her off camera and shoot mm. as a diptych. Mm -hmm. So that was just about kind of how I go about making an image. This is this young girl here has all the um, symptoms of being a shaman. This is Whoa. Sasha. Yeah. And um, so I wanted to do an image of her in the Almer River where she lives. And uh, so this is just showing me how I go wow. about making images. And uh, um, yeah, she... Um, what were her signs, yeah, for sh shaman? Well, she was having visions and hearing voices. And... Um, but Linza, the older woman that I don't think we've shown yet that I interviewed over there. Mm -hmm. There, here's Linza, mm -hmm. 89 years old. She dies three weeks after I interview her. Yeah. So that would have been Sasha's mentor. Okay. okay. So I don't know what happened to Sasha. If she ever got training. Um, um, I lost touch with with them, so uh, I, I hope she did, but yeah, um, you know, there were only a few, all these women had to go underground during the Soviet Union because there was no uh, religion allowed. This is in Mongolia, um, this is with the Satan people, the reindeer herders, they live in teepees, much like the Native Americans wow. do. And this is a shaman going into trance to help a young boy that's, um, I think he had a very high fever. And, uh, and you can see that it's a pretty wild thing to look at as they do their, you know, getting themselves in that state. And, uh, while he's doing it, you know, outside life is just going on normally. But, and uh, 
you'll see that he comes out of it kind of, he's been somewhere else, it's obvious when he comes out. And then he usually gives instructions to the family what they need to do. And you know, many times it's, you see, he's, he's coming back here. Many times it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I saw one shaman woman, Named, give this lady having trouble with her pregnancy, had her make this kind of thing out of cloth and then said, bring this to the mountain spirits. So it was like, they do things like that, reconnect with nature some way, um, much like you're saying, you know, remember, have gratitude, remember that you're part of everything, mm -hmm. that you're taking in and giving out all the time. And uh, so it's all, their healings seem very metaphorical, the ones I've seen. And, yeah. Yeah. And so the so the series of you going on site to um, different um, indigenous cultures is you both capture um, individual portraits and you capture um, a via film um, these these non ordinary states of consciousness through shamans. Yeah, a few. I haven't few. done that many. Okay, you know, um, I. I stayed away from that. So when I'm doing this, this interviewing of shamans over that 25 year period, I have no idea I'm going to be making a film on mental health or <laughs> delving into consciousness or any of this stuff. So I look back and say, I, yeah, I could have done a much better job. I would have really delved mm. more into mm. the initiation process. How do you teach somebody to ground? when they're going out too far and getting frightened, you know, dropping their mental model, or however we want to contextualize it, losing their ego. How do you teach somebody to be able to go back and forth like that? Yeah. And I, if I had to do it all over again, I would be definitely drilling down on that number. I didn't. There's more room to go and do it. Yeah, yeah. We need it. We yeah. need it. Now more than ever, we need film, photography, art ar around spirituality. Mm. And we need science to work mm. with spirituality. We, yeah. 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 It's kind of come. I mean, your interview here is kind of getting me in that direction again. And I've been invited to Stockholm in a couple of months to where there's going to be a gathering of indigenous elders and so I may Good. take another round at this. We'll see. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and inspired yeah, I'm just taking too. one step at a time. I, I'm just kind of letting it yeah. unfold. I'm not trying to get uptight about planning what I need to do next and hopefully yeah. let it flow more you know yeah then i have done things in the past sometimes you know yeah yeah that's a good gonna be a cool um a congregation of in, of indigenous elders in sweden yeah i think so you that's know i great. at first i thought well this is kind of a loose group organizing here and 
Um, but mm, yeah, yeah, I think it could be something good. And also to get children around the world interested in doing what we just mentioned with spirituality, I think is so, so critical to yeah. that future harmony that we need. Phil, I'm curious, do you, where do you think, do we, do we come from somewhere into these physical bodies on earth and then do we go back afterward? What do you think about, about that? Well, you know, I think about it, but I have no idea. I mean, I, I have an idea, but I wouldn't say I know anything. What is your idea about it? Well, I think that that could make some sense. Um, the Tibetans sure believe it. You know, reincarnation. They're, and I honor the Tibetan culture as a, an advanced culture. I honor the Dalai Lama as a very evolved human being. I've spent enough time around him, watching him, and I'm usually suspicious of leaders and authority figures. Um, but I've watched, you know, him be with people that have just come out of Tibet because a lot of people escape from Tibet and go into Dharamsala, and they're the new arrivals, and he meets each one of them, and. You know, and these people think he's a god. I mean, they look at him as, and sometimes they faint right in front of him. And he'll be with them and, you know, make sure they're okay, make sure they have a room and, you know, and the handlers want to keep moving him on because he has all these appointments. So he's, um, you know, and I've seen him interviewed on TV with, I think it was Larry King or somebody at the time. and. Uh, asking him what he thought about the Chinese. And he said, the Chinese are very important. You know, they're very important for us in the world and we've got to learn to work with them. Yes. You know, and these are people that kicked him out of his country. They were going to kill him. He had to escape in the middle of the night. Um, he hasn't been able to go back to Tibet since he was 24, I think. He's 86 now or 85. So, you know, I mean, and he's held his people back from rioting several times to say, he, he threatened to quit when Tibet in Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, started rioting after, right before the Beijing Olympics in 2012, I believe. And so he, he said, I'll quit if you don't stop this. <laughs> so he is, to me, the real deal, and his culture, the way they devote themselves to their practice of reducing self-importance, the, the main thing, self-cherishing, self-grasping, they call it, and reducing, chipping away at that ego with yeah. their meditations yeah. and, their, and their various religious practices. So, um, yeah. Okay. I don't know how I got on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great. That's a. I we we think that that's um uh, of respecting the the depths of the indigenous cultures around the world and um, their wisdoms is 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 critical for in the new age that we're heading into. Um, do you think we are in a simulation? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you do, right? I guess that's a uh, it's, title. It's very nuanced. The view. Um, you know, I'm sure that's is that very popular in the high tech community. 
um, that we are. That I think possibly. it's more popular with younger people trying mm. to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's a question we, for young people's minds. What is this? What is this all about? Is this some kind of game? <laughs> Do I have free will? Or am I just destined to pick my nose right now? <laughs> 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 yeah, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it helps the process to try and figure it out. It doesn't help my process, so I don't. Um, I'm more interested in practicing kindness and self, selfless acts. My wife is a great teacher for me. Mm. Um, she's much more that way than I am. And uh, so, and along with the little practice you just talked about, you know, the gratitude practice mm. and re that remembering that we're constantly, we are everything mm. in our daily rituals of breathing and eating and yeah. drinking, you know. So, that's enough for me to handle. And then what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? <laughs> oh, this is a question you ask everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the most beautiful thing in the world. Oh boy, there's so much beauty in the world. And the world is beautiful. Uh, I don't have a good answer. You know, I there's you know, I the other night I saw a sunset like I've never seen. We are very fortunate where we live in Seattle. I have a view over this lake and I watch the sun go down every night mm. and the lake turns pure gold mm. and it just did the other night. At that moment that was the beautiful most beautiful thing in the yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I can look at my wife at times, and she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Or yeah. my son, my daughter, you know. Um, it's just a lot of things that reek of beauty. Cheesecake. <laughs> Cheesecake, yes. Right on, Ray. I'm doing right. silly. Yeah. 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 Yes, I've been there. Yeah. And I fight that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a real sweet tooth. Wow. Oh. Don't yell like that. I feel so good. <laughs> I feel so good. All right. Oh. All right. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks for giving me a place to sleep tonight. You're super welcome. <laughs> Any, anytime. 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 Yeah. We, All right. We, we, I don't know where we, I am going to sleep. Right. The hotel right. across the street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Supporting the artists, the entrepreneurs, the spiritual leaders around the world is so important. Whether it's a place to sleep, Patreon, PayPal, cryptocurrency, support them support crazy wise go and watch the film everyone go and support them also support us our links are in the bio below support us help support 
the people that you believe in in the world. Shout out to Ron Vogus for producing and directing. Thank you very much, Ronnie. And uh, also- I was calling you Ray, I'm sorry. No worries, Ron, it's all good. You can all call good. me whatever you, you want. Can call, so, you, can yeah. call, you can call me whatever you want. Spike. <laughs> and also, have more conversations about these things with your friends, families, coworkers, people online on social media, talk more about spirituality, talk more about indigenous wisdom, talk more about these things, share them around the world, everyone. Get inspired to make content about it and go and build the future. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you very much for tuning in. We will see you soon. Peace.